All right, cool. Here we go. Perfect crime. Part two. Part two. The arbitrary selection of dividing this into parts. My choice, because going through this stuff is slow. It's a, it's a laborious task. So I'm starting here from the chapter titled Machinic Snobbery. So th this is an important chapter for a number of reasons, because as, as far as I know, it's Baudrillard's first uh, kind of homage to Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol is someone that was very influential for uh, Baudrillard, and it's something. Uh, well, he's someone that that Baudrillard takes up quite a bit in um, uh, the Conspiracy of Art, that collection of uh, various essays. Where, if if any of you have read it, you'd probably know that it's extremely repetitive. It, it there are a number of interviews and essays that. Um, pretty much all say the same thing about how Baudrillard praises Andy Warhol for being able to emulate the kind of machinic conditions of the day. So one of the first lines of this um, chapter goes as follows. The enigma is that of an object which offers itself up in total transparency and hence cannot be naturalized by critical or aesthetic discourse. It is that of a superficial artificial object which succeeds in preserving its artificiality, in shaking free of any natural sig signification to take on a spectral intensity empty of meaning, which is that of the fetish. And he continues in the next paragraph, stating that the fetish, ob fetish object, as we know, has no value. So this notion of the fetish object is, is an important one for Baudrillard, and he has this whole kind of meditation on it in his third book uh, for a critique of the political economy of the sign, where he considers how the fetish object doesn't actually have its trait roots fundamentally in a kind of uh, Freudian sense, um, or in the unconscious in the Freudian sense, nor is it fully um, have anything to do with labor per se. What it really has to do for Baudrillard is, is with uh, consumption. So Baudrillard elaborates on this notion of the fetish by suggesting that Andy Warhol was the first to bring us modern fetishism trans-aesthetic feminism, that of an image without quality, a presence without desire. So he's drawing another distinction here, and as you might remember from the first video, I, I tried to bifurcate, I tried to create a number of binaries within Baudrillard's work in order to clarify some of his more complicated terms. But he's doing that here as well, where he's making that clear distinction between the art object in the form of the fetish and the kind of naturalized um, realness associated with with the art object. So for him, for Baudrillard, he's not interested in anything that claims to have a kind of purported um, truthfulness to it, whether it be located in some kind of biological determinism or kind of historical certainty or anything like that. Rather, everything is up to the whims of the current conditions of the time and some to some extent. Uh, so when he says that Warhol was able to emulate this, fundamentally what Baudrillard is saying is that Warhol somehow was able to tap into the kind of secret logic of of all things, notably that nothing is and of itself capable of being um, having total autonomy and control over its being. So in some of the later texts, and I think he might get into that here as well, but in some of the later texts, uh, notably The Conspiracy of Art, Baudrillard makes very clear that Andy Warhol's um, kind of seductive allure is through his ability to be a machine to some extent, to kind of gi give up 
a degree of autonomy, or to at least represent that in his um, in his art. So yes, of course, almost immediately following this, he does uh, refer to Warhol as a machine. So he does this by stating that those who work on scientific video or computer-generated images <coughs> do exactly the opposite. Notably, they start out from any old image and eliminate, or sorry, I, I took this out of context, started reading too soon. So here, fresh start. Warhol starts out from any old image, eliminates its imaginary dimension, and makes it a pure visual product. Those who work on scientific video or computer-generated images do exactly the opposite. They use the raw material in the machine to remake art. Warhol is a machine. He is the true machinic metamorphosis. The others exploit technology to create illusion. Warhol offers us the pure illusion of technology. Technology is radical illusion, an illusion far superior today to that of painting. So for Baudrillard, as I kind of presented in the first uh, part here, the first half of the book, Baudrillard is not totally prepared to um, totally do away with this thing called technology. In fact, he thinks that to some extent there is retained the notion of, of illusion within technology. So for that reason, like I said, he's not totally prepared to eschew it. Um, but what he is weary about or wary about are those attempts to get outside of technology and how that kind of purportedly moves people to like fundamentally towards a kind of liberatory illusory space. So for Baudrillard, that would simply reinscribe the authority of um, a kind of oppressive si uh, simulation machine, notably by bifurcating an inside and outside, only ever strengthening that that very distinction. But for Baudrillard, you know, in recognizing this in Warhol, states that it is important. It important. It is important to recognize that mobilizing the machine in such a way as Warhol does reinvigorates the sense of illusion much greater than those attempts to get outside of technology, for instance, get outside of the possibility of being a machine. So, and then, oh, excuse the horn. Uh, Baudrillard says of Warhol that he was never anything then but a kind of hologram. This is because, like, um, I guess, the, the ultimate deconstructive uh, approach, Andy Warhol has disappeared along with the art object, and it can only be, and is only resurrected in the form of a hologram, kind of the hyperreal version of art as such. So for Baudrillard, modern art has gone a very long way in the deconstruction of its object, but it is Warhol who has gone furthest in the annihilation of the artist and the creative act. This that is his snobbery, but it is a snobbery which relieves us of all the effect, affectation of art precisely because it is machine-like. So with Warhol, we get out of the utopian vision associated with art or the utopian ideals associated with it towards the fundamental quality of art, notably that it's like some kind of, it doesn't have any kind of innate uh, association with any of these concepts like utopia, like liberation, like freedom, but rather is something that, you know, it's ultimately n n nothing. And it's where it's in that nothingness that, um, you know, that Baudrillard taps into or is trying to tap into. And it is certainly the case of, of modern art. Say what you will about uh, other other epistemes of art or other periods of art, which I know very little about. Like, I should have prefaced this. Um, I am not an, an art historian in 
any capacity. I know very little about it. Uh, so t I really should have started with that. Oh, well, now you know. I'm not, I certainly don't know about that, but I know about what Baudrillard is saying. Take it, so take it as you will. So in, all Warhol is really doing when, you know, as Baudrillard recognizes that he has effectively disappeared along with his art object, is really just complying to a system where that has occurred. So for Baudrillard, at this stage of machination, of auto-machination, there is no longer any critical space, a space where subject and object are respectively present, but a paradoxical space, a space where subject and ob object have respectively disappeared. So Warhol is that much more effective at mounting some kind of um, challenge to the system because he doesn't comply to the very to the to the notions that the system tries to put forth, right? So on the one hand, we have a system as Baudrillard just identified that has has disappeared, right? The kind of the any distinction between distinctions between subject and object have disappeared, yet they have been resurrected, kind of maintained in their hyperreal form. And the example I've given like a million times is the idea of pornography where sexuality has disappeared. We think of Marlene Dietrich's uh, proclamation that, you know, um, everywhere uh, sex is, um, in America, sexism is an, sex is an obsession, but in other parts of the world, it is a fact, um, which is a really lovely way to put it. Uh, yet we erect things like pornography to convince us otherwise, to try and make it apparent that the, this institution has not disappeared. So what Baudrillard then, Baudrillard, what Warhol is effective at doing then is meeting, meeting the system or matching it at its, what I will reluctantly say is its true level, as it really presents itself, as it really is, which wouldn't be how it presents itself, how, how it really is. So many people have critiqued, at least Baudrillard recognizes uh, Warhol because there, is, there wasn't any kind of uh, political significance to it, right? You couldn't really take out of it an anti-capitalist uh, agenda. Or as Baudrillard says, uh, the polemic, there, there were the polemics about his complicity with the media or the capitalist system. So of this, Baudrillard says that certainly there is no denunciation in the Warhol universe, since there is not even, strictly speaking, any enunciation. That is his strength. Any critical meaning would only weaken the paradoxical position. Any negativity would merely detract from the image as extreme phenomenon. That is to say, the radical indifference of images to the world. Therein lies the secret of the image, of its superficial radicality and its material innocence, this capacity to refract, refract every interpretation into the void, which stands opposed to a system that tries to give everything a face, right? And, and this is why our system is extremely pornographic in that sense, that tries to give everything a, um, a history, a name, a face, an identity, because we're, we're scared of the unknown, right? So Warhol's being as he is, at least according to Baudrillard, is a subversive act, but it's, it is not one that, you know, that can necessarily be mobilized, that Warhol could even have necessarily been aware of because it was simply a product of that very um, kind of murky underbelly of the system itself, that kind of um, un unness of the system itself. Unness. That's a good good word, David. Good word. So like agnosticism, which Baudrillard says uh, we are all secretly agnostic as well as Warhol, where the agnostics say God exists, and in brackets perhaps or maybe, but I don't believe in him, 
For Baudillard, Warhol states, Art exists, perhaps, in brackets, but I don't believe in it. And it is precisely because I don't believe in it that I am the best. <laughs> yeah, Baudillard's got a real crush on Warhol, but yeah, it's, it's what we got. There are other artists that do all this stuff too, but... Oh, technical difficulty. Watch, it's probably catching all this anyways. Yeah? Okay. Well, that'll be embarrassing for anyone listening. So of this phenomenon, notably the distinction that Baudrillard makes between truth and illusion, or, or between reality and illusion. Illusion being the side that Warhol occupies, and reality being the side the system in its erection of... Erection. In its, uh, I guess, creation of various institutions to... Uh, convince us of our humanity in a sense um, between these two Baudrillard makes at this point a rather interesting claim so for him illusion is in effect the most egalitarian the most democratic principle there is everyone is equal before the world as illusion whereas we are not at all equal before the world as truth and reality where all inequalities are engendered this is extremely difficult to reconcile because, um, you know, we can just think of history and first of all, you know, what does he mean by illusion? Did that, when did that exist? And how can we inoculate this kind of discourse from, you know, simply subscribing to, you know, uh, contemporary kind of uh, neoconservative, uh, keep America great again or make America great again type, type rhetoric to which, you know, to any such suggestion, I would reply that the um, the discourse around inequality is a new one, which isn't to say that these things did not exist across time and space, but rather our understanding of them was different. So it's almost as though Baudrillard is it's wanting, wanting people to be less uh, conscious about things which I think would be safe to say. I think that there is kind of there has been a, an explosion of knowledge, but this is an explosion that corresponds to that very one of those systemic efforts to convince us of our having knowledge or anything like that, which, you know, in my heart of hearts I I disagree with, but I think that's what he's getting at here. Notably the idea that we can return to a time and I would have to reiterate this notion of singularity. Uh, but for more on that, check out the last video or, you know, in the future, whenever I get to, I think it's the intelligence of evil, one of those texts, um, when he speaks about uh, singularity, but almost getting to this uh, singular moment when people were just within their own spheres and they, they were completely complicit with that. And now here we go into the next chapter and Baudrillard completely undoes everything we've just done. Okay. Baudrillard is an ass for that reason, but, you know, we have it. So up until this point, we've constructed the notion of illusion as being in opposition to reality. And we know this because he makes the fundamental claim that, if we may recall, but I will read it again, it is not, or he makes the distinction that the real is not the opposite of simulation. The real is merely a particular case of simulation, but it is illusion that is the opposite of simulation. Now let's jump for, back forward to where we are now in the book. This is, this is what he said. For illusion is not the opposite of reality. It is a more subtle reality, which enwraps the primary one in the sign of its disappearance. Now I have to applaud 
Baudrillard here because like with his previous assessment, it would be all too easy to construct another kind of binary or bifurcation between this thing called reality and let's well, illusion, or it would fall into the same rubric of the kind of matrix paradigm, right? The film in that way, where there is a clear split between the matrix or simulation and the outside, which something is something that Baudrillard takes up in the conspiracy of art with his, uh, um, it's an interview to, titled the matrix revisited, uh, where he talks about that. So this is an important move that he makes because otherwise his, I think his work would just simply fall into the same kind of track that, that he would be very critical of. So in this, this, chapter is really focusing on um, photography. So Baudrillard has a history with photography. His photographs are actually shown or have been shown in various um, um, uh, galleries because he is uh, actually a good photographer, kind of surprisingly. Um, and he there's a whole history behind it. He went to Japan, in the, I think in the early 80s, but I could be a little off about that. I think, I'm thinking 82, but around that time he went to Japan and before he went like he had a friend give him a camera like the first camera he ever got and he started to take photos and then from that time till, till he died about 20 25 years later uh, he, he was he took photos prolifically um, and he's he, all around the world because he traveled to Brazil quite often Australia America of course <clears throat> and he took photos so this chapter is him thinking about photography which is odd because at times he he made it very clear that his act of photography was very di different, right? Was there, he wanted to maintain a distance between his being a photographer and his being a theorist or philosopher? So he says that every ph photographed object is merely the trace left by the disappearance of everything else. From the summit of this object, exceptionally absent from the rest of the world, you have an unbeatable view of the world. So he continues. The absence of the world which is present in every detail, reinforced by every detail, like the absence of the subject reinforced by every future of a face. So I read this as being uh, the suggestion that the act of photography is something that renders any sort of given subject, if you photograph faces or whatever, renders them object, renders them, um, I guess in their image form, um, residue or remnants of a time past. Right, because you can't, you can't. There can never be an instantaneous photo, or a photo that happens it hasn't already happened. Right, the photo is something that exists in the past, like everything, technically. Or, in his words, the photo is not an image in real time. It retains the moment of the negative, the suspense of the negative, that slight time lag which allows the image to exist before the world or the object disappears into the image, which they could not do in the computer-generated image where the real has already disappeared. The photo preserves the moment of disappearance and thus the charm of the real, like that of a previous life. So what does he mean by the real here? We, you know, to make sense of it, we can just, I'll just throw out a definition. Things as they are kind of ontically. So like how we see the world, like what exists, you know, table and lamp, um, what have you. So he, he does view photography as a, as a positive thing, whereas some people might, uh, especially those people that consider art, um, would consider it to be like a bastardization of art. Um, Baudrillard is, is somewhat optimistic about it, and he takes this up again in 
either Impossible Exchange or The Illusion of the End, because the those books are just uh, essentially collections of essays, and I can't I don't always remember where things belong or things things are. Uh, but he uses this this notion of photography to speak about his theory about otherness. So in this in this moment, the photographic moment, something is rendered object. Something is rather kind of exterior to to oneself. So of this, he says that the only deep desire is not for what I lack, nor even for the person who lacks me, though that is itself more subtle, but for the person who does not lack me, for what is precisely capable of existing without me, someone who does not lack me, that is radical otherness. And this becomes totally apparent in the act of photography, when the thing being photographed is rendered completely um, objective, completely other to oneself. So, he says, hence the difficulty of photographing individuals and faces. It is impossible to get someone into focus photographically when you can't properly get them into focus, in brackets, or in, in quotes, psychologically. Subjects, unlike objects, are never willing accessories. They make the lens tremble. So this act of photography then renders things object, which is in turn uh, the process by which we can reclaim this notion of illusion, right? So for him, if there is a secret to illusion, it invokes taking the world for the world and not for its model, notably those uh, those kind of caricatures of the world that are erected by the system in order to convince us the world is still there. It involves restoring to the world the formal power of illusion, which is precisely the same thing as becoming again in an imminent way, imminent way, a thing among things. And he ends this chapter with a really interesting, um, I guess, parable um, with, with, with Changzu and, and Huizu. Well, let me see where that's from, actually. Yeah, of Changzu, where um, it goes as follows. Changzu and Huizu had strolled on to the bridge over the howl when the former observed, See how the minnows are darting about? That is the pleasure of the fishes. You, not being a fish yourself, said Huizu, how can you possibly know in what consists in the pleasure of fishes? And you, not being I, retorted Chuangzu, how can you know that I do not know? If I, not being you, cannot know what you know, urged Huizu, it follows that you, not being a fish, cannot know in what consists the pleasure of fishes. Let us go back, said Chuangzu, to your original question. You asked me how I knew in what consists the pleasure of fishes. Your very question shows that you knew I knew. For you asked me how I knew. I knew it from my own feelings on this bridge. I don't know why he ends it with that with that little um, passage, but it's it, I think it's beautiful certainly calls into question this um, the relationship between not only subjects and language, but subjects and the world, what we often consider to be objects, and the fundamental connection between all of these things through the medium of language, and how the person can in fact feel um, f feel the, the fish or, or know their pleasures. But I won't, like, because that, that, I just really enjoy that story. So, here we move on, and he gives us in the next chapter a very clear uh, set of principles. He says, To restore the world to its pitiless illusoriness 
it's irrevocable indeterminacy, only one solution, disinformation, deprogramming, and the thwarting of perfection, which seems pretty fair. I mean, let's, let's make ourselves a little more dumb to, to, you know, return this idea of illusion back, which might be the solution. Who knows? So I'm going to try to speed this up a little bit here to try and get through all of this in, you know, just in this episode. Uh, but he, in this chapter, he considers uh, the, the Tower of Babel. So in the Tower of Babel, you know, people were constructing this tower to try and reach God, to which God smited them and said, no, you, you're not going to do this. Um, it'd be blasphemous. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to divide you based on language. You can no longer communicate to one another. So Baudrillard says of this moment that... Um, we can see in this the kind of trace of the development of illusion, oddly. Because he states, this does not mark a kind of pluralism of a language, right? So he, he doesn't say that this is like an opening up of a possibility of there being um, otherness. Well, I guess he does in a sense, but it's rather our interpretation of it um, as um, uh, the as the opening up of other otherness through like multi linguistic dim- dimension. Wow, brain fart. Um, but of this, he says that the very hypothesis uh, is absurd. So languages are, languages are not different; they are other. They are not plural; they are singular. And like all that is singular, they are irreconcilable. We must prefer the singular to the plural. We should extend to all our objects the faithful dispersion of languages, which is kind of the uh, pragmatism here. He's, he gave us a he gives us a real thing here. Um, or I'm being generous, but I I think what this means is that he he doesn't want to view things as being other because that would kind of give way to the liberal dimension of of multiculturalism or anything like that, where people are you know, deep down all like the same, despite our kind of superficial differences. Baudrillard says that no, in and of themselves, any single given culture is a world, right? It is a kind of singularity. So for that reason, we can't necessarily suggest that that groups can be like, can can mingle, not to say they can't either, but that um, there is a sort of radical distance between all groups. And our attempts to bring them together is, is in favor of the plural as opposed to the singular because it puts a bunch of things, I guess, together, making them all different rather than other. So that's a that's a crucial distinction that Baudrillard makes between otherness and difference, where difference is, is given up to the gods of the kind of liberal multicultural um, ideology, whereas otherness has a real potency in that it, it opposes that very system. It opposes the logic of identity to some extent in favor of you know people having their own destiny having their own uh, pathway so this sort of perspective that he puts forth kind of corresponds to what he considers a radical theory so for him a radical theory is the is lies at the violent intersection of meaning and non-meaning of truth and non-truth of the continuity of the world and the continuity of the nothing Moreover, the radical prediction is always the prediction of the non-reality of facts, of the illusoriness of the state of fact. It begins only with the presentiment of that illusoriness and is never confused with the objective state of things. 
So I think that we can relate this back to his theorization about language because in his discourse around otherness as opposed to difference, he maintains that these notions of fact or truth or anything like that is housed within a particular singularity and is not something that can be mobilized per se by, by other groups and because of their own singularity. It's when they're given up to this notion of plurality and this kind of, what was that? Oh, this kind of rabid democratization do they lose the possibility for that radicality because they're given up to this kind of systemic um, power, this kind of glo like globalized authority? So then he puts forward this, I think, rather beautiful thesis that um, some, that indifference has been stolen from us. So indifference is, I think, something that could only really exist in a in singularity, right? So it's almost something that could exist when with the attainment of singularity, people were fully Im immersed into their kind of um, cultural moment or whatever, maybe not cultural, but their kind of their, their moment. Um, so then indifference, they, they didn't need to worry about the, the world around them because it would, it was kind of um, an organic system where they would grow with it almost without their needing to be necessarily conscious of it. So some this, this this has been stolen from us, and I think that it could be said that this has been stolen from the transition from you know singularity to plurality, or from illusion to reality, or, or what have you. So for him, the power of indifference, which is the quality of the mind, as opposed to the play of differences, which is the characteristic of the world. Now this has been stolen from us by a world grown indifferent, as the extravagance of thought has been stolen from us by an extravagant world. So... And I think, you know, it could very easily be read that Baudrillard is a thinker, is a very apathetic thinker, um, very much not interested in political movements or political struggles, which, you know, I think is fair. Like, I think he's, you know, but he writes, he, he has written a lot on political stuff. Uh, there is something to be said about how he considers indifference today. And this goes back to his uh, theorization in The Shadow of the Silent Majorities, when he considers the way in which people are, have you know, effectively don't don't engage in a political manner or a meaningful manner. Like people aren't prepared to get out with pitchforks and and kill their leaders. You know, we are seeing certainly political movements today that you know that are very uh, effective. And I wouldn't and I don't want to discredit that. Um, but perhaps we're not going to see a kind of uh, another French Revolution occur. Not to say that that's like the pure example of um, of non-indifference sorry for those noises my neighbors are the worst people on this planet they honk their horns to get in and out of a goddamn gate so of all this in a kind of optimistic manner Baudrillard says that one must fight all charges of irresponsibility nihilism or despair radical thought is never depressive on this point there's total misunderstanding ideological and moralistic critique obsessed with meaning and content, obsessed with the political finality of discourse, never takes into account writing, the act of writing, the poetic, ironic, elusive force of language, and the juggling with meaning. It does not see that the re resolution of meaning is to be found there, in the form itself, the formal materiality of expression. So this is, you know, one of the more hidden concepts or uh, lesser known things in Baudrillard is that he really advocated for trying to be happy. Uh, and, you know, I had this conversation with so many people so many different times that say, oh, yeah, he's just a cynic or a pessimist or something like that, which I don't think is the case at all. You hear the horn? 
makes me want to throw things. Um, but I don't, I don't consider him personally to be, um, you know, cynic, right? I think that he's a rather optimistic thinker, partly because I think that to some extent, and I can, I can relate this to, uh, John Baldwin, um, the African-American uh, activist who said that I, I really have no reason to be pessimistic. And this is back in like the seventies. He's like, I really have no reason to be pessimistic because I'm still alive. And I think Baudrillard is along the same lines. You know, he, he wasn't having his life threatened. He wasn't, he wasn't a black man in the, in, or, or even today. Um, rather, I think that he is hopeful because we can see the remnants of illusion existing, right, in the form of Warhol, in the form of play, in irony, in the challenge, in seduction, these these things that still remain. And we'd be all too quick to suggest that Baudrillard is, like, saying that we've lost that and we're screwed and we're just, like, we're running into kind of um, total, you know, apocalyptic-type destruction, which I don't want to dissuade anyone from thinking that. Like, there is that part of this here, too. But I'm just, I just want to make clear that there is there is more to it than that. I think that Baudrillard is a rather optimistic and quite simply happy thinker. So then he has this little uh, kind of poetic section when he says that uh, he gives off like a list where he says that no more other, that's communication. No more enemy, that's negotiation. No more predators, that's conviviality. No more negativity, absolute positivity. No more death, the immortality of the clone. No more otherness, identity indifference. No more seduction, sexual indifference. No more illusion, hyper-reality, virtual reality. No more secret, transparency. No more destiny, the perfect crime. And after that kind of tangent, um, we get into this uh, problematic chapter, I won't lie, uh, titled The World Without Women. Now this is, he bases this off of, uh, I believe, a film, um, where uh, there's some kind of mysterious illness that starts to kill off women to the point that, you know, women no longer exist. So Baudrillard says of this that uh, what we can see, if if such a thing were to occur, would be the end of a sort of uh, complete otherness, right? Where for women, or for Baudrillard, the notion of the feminine, which with this analogy, he inextricably links to women, which is undermines some of his other central concepts, notably going back to seduction and some other claims he makes is that, you know, women and, and the feminine are relatively arbitrary. These things don't align. <clears throat> and this is something that, you know, some other really important thinkers have, have um, taken up. Uh, but, you know, here we have it. Baudrillard says that the central idea of this text or this film, that the world without women, uh, is that of an extermination of femaleness, a terrifying allegory for the extermination of all otherness, for which the feminine is the metaphor and perhaps more than the metaphor. But this has been a kind of cultural project for a very long time, dating back to at least, and it can be much earlier than that, but we think of like famous stories like Frankenstein, where Victor Frankenstein appears to be motivated by a desire to, um, to mobilize science as a means of uh, just had the word of um, detouring around women, right? If if men is able to reproduce or man is able to reproduce, and I mean man in the gendered way, not the universal sense, not that I'd ever do that, but we have man 
um, producing a creature, a human, ostensibly, um, in order to get past women. And through this whole, you know, through through the whole book, he's always deferring his his marriage to um, his uh, his cousin, which is his cousin. Don't don't uh, don't get it wrong. All the additions, you know, that try to obscure that fact can't can't do it. He's going to marry his cousin, um, and he he puts it off right throughout the course of the book until at the very end when you know they finally do get married or toward the end and. She dies right away before they can consummate the the relationship, D- really suggesting that the whole um, not that Mary Shelley intended this, but it speaks of the cultural logic of trying to get beyond the icky, gross women that that men fear, right? Which is why we have porn, which you know, uh, women's bodies are completely uh, hairless and and they're they're intended to be these these kind of um, superficial uh, landscapes which I should qualify that by stating that, like, of course, it's much more complicated than that. Like, these are still women. But is this, it is this notion of women, as we can see in, in Frankenstein, or as Baudrillard is thinking about it here in relation to this film, um, that we try to eliminate, because that stands in for a sort of um, the, the mystery of the world or the remnants of a kind of illusion. But this is not because that women have some kind of um, innate affinity with with these ideas, but rather it's the, we've notably the history makers men have inscribed women with that meaning. Therefore, you know we still we fall prey to our own prejudices, to our own histories that we've created, um, which is why we thinking is hard. Thinking demands getting out of certain constructions that are that are incredibly um, well embedded in, into us. But we use women as a kind of scapegoat right for this notion of mystery illusion that following kind of syllogistically um this world is trying to eradicate so women being the kind of metaphorical example of that so all this corresponds to a general notion or a general drive to purge the world of otherness so as baudrillard says this liquidation of the other is accompanied by an artificial synthesis of otherness a radical cosmetic surgery of which cosmetic surgery on faces and bodies is merely a symptom, for the crime is perfect only when even the traces of the destruction of the other has disappeared. Notably, the yeah, the perfect crime. And that, you know, what he means by um, um, the synthesis of otherness, the artificial t- synthesis of otherness, I think is in the form of muse- museumification, which is a term that comes up, I think, in either fatal strategies or, or simulacra and simulation or both. Um, you know, we eradicate in the case of Native Americans, for instance, or indigenous people in, in so many different lands. Uh, we, we kill them, and then we put up their their uh, relics. We put up their icons in museums, right, to kind of pay homage to a, to a, 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 a people eradicated, really um, kind of kicking them when they're down or adding insult to injury, putting them in fucking museums. But the eradication of women, because we're taking it as a metaphor, does not just occur when women physically disappear, or quite literally disappear. Rather, Baudrillard makes it clear that um, we can mobilize um, uh, the dissipation or the surgical removal of otherness, as he states, um, by rendering women or positioning women up to the status of 
a sort of certainty or kind of biological certainty, which is something that he considers in um, seduction. And again, I want to reiterate that I, in, in my reading of this, I don't, I think that it loses its potential if we think that this is something that has to actually do with real women. And that if we go beyond um, taking it metaphorically, or not beyond, but if we come back, because the metaphor is what takes things further, right? Metaphor is what goes beyond porn. Uh, so it's... For him, and this is his challenge to uh, Irigure in Seduction when he says that um, Irigure kind of evoking the sense of there being this kind of natural uh, womanness. Baudrillard says, no, we have to get away from this notion of the natural. We have to get away from this notion of, of truth in some capacity. And rather than, you know, saying that, uh, framing this all around women, you know, I think the same should be said of men, where we have to take men out of their, uh, you know, the notion of masculinity, which, you know, men and masculinity are, are inextricably linked, I would say. Mm, you know, I will say hesitantly, but there's something to be said about that, at least in, in the West, global north. And all of this leads, I guess, in part um, to the project of dissuading um, explanation, right? Or dissuading truth, suggesting that things can only ever manifest themselves in some kind of um, image form that is susceptible to adaptation, that is susceptible to evolution or something like that. But, and it's like, it, it kind of corresponds to like evolution in the Nietzschean sense, where it's not simply, and I say this often of Baudrillard, that it's like uh, being subject to the whims of these exterior forces. But I, you know, I think it's important to invoke Nietzsche here and think about the way that individual history, not in in terms of like uh, routine or anything like that, but the history of you know what you learn and how you can then mobilize it, right, as a means of for your will to power. Not to say that it can necessarily be that, but it's kind of like there has to be little elements of that thrown in as well for the human to actually adapt over over time and to and to move which this system is attempting to um dispel or try to um purge that possibility from occurring so then he turns to from talking about sex and gender and all that good stuff to talking about race but you know he, he makes a not so much a problematic claim he says that racism is harnessed and actually um uh, intensified post-enlightenment. In democracy, with all these things, you know, he says that it was, these were supposed to be the institutions that got rid of racism, but it seems as though they harness it. They they really uh, thrive off of racism. So racism, sexism, or any kind of discrimination, he says, is a result of our having lost an ability to respect otherness, an ability to respect that, you know, People don't always have to be given up to the dregs of some kind of universal type system, whether it be through science or anything like that. But in fact, the things were in the in the time of singularity. And this is a romantic picture he's painting, but you know, we, here we have it, um, where people knew of their singularity and their singularity alone. When they came in contact with other people, it wasn't as though they knew that they were automatically inferior, even though conflicts didn't sue, right? In inevitably, but it was much more complicated than that, at least for Baudrillard. So in a kind of contemporary manifestation, Baudrillard is really concerned with the way that uh, Muslims and, and Arabic people 
are treated on a global scale where <clears throat> the price to pay for modern Europe will be the eradication of Muslims and Arabs who are indeed already being eradicated everywhere except where they remain as immigrant slaves. So all of this kind of puts forth a kind of globalized new world order uh, that Baudrillard says is characterized by white fundamentalism, protectionism, discrimination, and control. For, so for those people that think that Baudrillard is like, uh, d doesn't care about racism or anything like that, like, here you go. Um, but here we, here we have it. Like, there, there, is, there is something to, certainly to be said about the way that Baudrillard considers um, this, this global system as an effort to eradicate otherness, which often takes the form of racial minorities, uh, while at the same time instilling, a, you know, this white fundamentalism. Because this is a very white phenomenon. Notably, many of the things that he speaks about are have to do with whiteness, and especially his notions of transparency and disappearance. White people see no, uh, there's no such thing as a barrier for a white person. They, they travel, they're very hip, um, you know, they, they wear whatever cultural um, icons they want. Who cares? They can do whatever, because they are those kind of free-floating, deterritorialized beings that Baudrillard resists so heavily or that he's, he's very much opposed to. And this is only exacerbated in our contemporary rhetoric where he makes, I will say, the rather problematic uh, proclamation that, that political correctness is a bad thing. On this level, I think I would agree with him to some extent where he says that like um, uh, black people, the handicapped, the blind and prostitutes become people of color, the disabled, the visually impaired, and sex workers. They have to be laundered up like dirty money. Every negative destiny has to be cleaned up by a doctoring even more obscene than that it is trying to hide. So I would agree insofar, not that anyone really cares what my opinion is, um, but I think it's important to qualify this. Um, I think that it's, it's, a, it's a good thing or it's important to consider this because even our kind of liberal uh, efforts have to be challenged, right? Are kind of um, at the linguistic level, how we characterize people in such a way does actually have an effect on how you know people people exist. Not not to say that we have like we occupy a space of authority per se, and that all other people correspond in a kind of homogenous manner to whatever um, you know what kind, whatever discourse or rhetoric we put forth. But because there there are these these histories present. The way in which we characterize certain people, I think, is in many ways an attempt to absolve ourselves of guilt, right? So we take it up in a, at a linguistic level, and then we don't need to consider it, like, any longer, right? And it makes us feel better about ourselves. So black people or anything like that are become people of color, just simply one among others, rather than having any kind of identity of their own. And this isn't to say that, like, black people are a certain way or that they have a certain destiny per se or that the same could be said of of white people but that there is something to be said about the way that we try to eradicate the possibility that otherness does exist in in order to you know essentially make to curb our white tears to make ourselves feel better about ourselves and this it is really problematic and this isn't an, this is not a notion i subscribe to but it's one that i'm trying to Make, make clear here. So he ends the book here with a rather intriguing chapter uh, titled The Revenge of the Mirror People. So here begins 
the great revenge of otherness, of all the forms which, subtly, subtly or violently, deprived of their singularity, henceforth pose an insoluble problem for the social order and also for the political and biological orders. So then Baudrillard gives a, presents a passage from Borgia. goes as follows. In those days, the world of mirrors and the world of men were not, as they are now, cut off from each other. They were, besides, quite different. Neither beings nor colors nor shapes were the same. Both kingdoms, the specular and the human, lived in harmony. You could come and go through mirrors. One night the mirror people invaded the earth. Their power was great. But at the end of a bloody warfare, the magic arts of the Yellow Emperor prevailed. He repulsed the invaders imprisoned them in their mirrors, and forced on them the task of repeating, as though in a kind of dream, all the actions of men. He stripped them of their power and all their forms, and reduced them to mere slavish reflections. Nonetheless, a day will come when the magic spell will be shaken off. Shapes will begin to stir. Little by little they will differ, they will differ from us. Little by little they will not imitate us. They will break through the barriers of glass or metal, and this time will not be defeated." Now, what the hell does that mean? Uh, well, I think certainly um, it's the notion that the, the image, how we fear images, and instead, you know, we, we have comfort in, you know, scientific certainty or anything like that, that locates real, you know, biological essences, <coughs> or racial essen essences, anything like that. Uh, we we strive to maintain those distinctions through a kind of scientific endeavor rather than giving ourselves over to uh, the status of the image, right? So that'll be the moment, that'll be the day when the image people break out or the mirror people break out of their mirrors and, and take over again, it's ostensibly marking the, the moment that images reclaim their position or a kind of benevolent simulation takes over because simulation is, has, a, has a strong affinity with images. And then he, he leaves us here with a long paragraph to kind of sum everything up. And he says, literally, to sum up, we find ourselves faced with a dual project, a bid to complete the world, to achieve an integral reality, and a bid to continue the nothing, of which the book is a part. Both are doomed to fail, but whereas the failure of an attempt at completion is necessarily negative, the failure of an attempt at annihilation is necessarily vital and positive. It is for this reason that thought, which knows it will fail in any case, is duty-bound to set itself criminal objectives. An undertaking directed towards positive objectives cannot allow itself to fail. One which pursues criminal objectives is duty-bound to fail. Such is the will-tempered application of the principle of evil. If the system fails to be everything, nothing will remain of it. If thought fails to be nothing, something will remain of it. So giving us this, um, uh, this kind of... And end note to consider the the um, importance of negativity. I think an idea builds upon from fatal strategies that it's important that we challenge the world <clears throat> as being something that can be fully understood or grasped through these kind of positive objectives, and instead invoke the notion or evoke the notion that um, things aren't necessarily so clear. And we do that by have, taking on these kind of criminal objectives driving theory or thought to be um, a disturbance rather than a kind of acquiescent um, approach. But I guess that's all I have. I, I sped things up a bit and I kind of, you know, I try to like generate a narrative through this book, but 
all the chapters are, are pretty um, different. <clears throat> so for that reason, like there are some there are some ideas and concepts that I went over, and I would really suggest that everyone go out and read it if they're actually interested. But on that note, I don't think there's any more. I hope I'll have someone else on here soon. I think I might do Ivan Illich pretty soon with with a someone else. But on that note, I'll see you next time.